Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. ...part can understand this message. And if I were to give an overall theme, notice on your study guide of the book, it would be Becoming an Encouraging Believer. Okay, and while that is not necessarily a complex concept, I do think we all have room, no doubt, to grow as better encouragers. Okay, I know I do. And that the fact is encouragement may be the most sought after commodity in our world today. Do you know that we live in a world full of critics? Anybody found that out? We live in a world full of hardship. We live in a world where, where uh, failure often precedes victory. Okay, And oftentimes the only difference between giving up and pressing on is a single word of encouragement. We need it, don't we? We need it. It is apparent that our world is, is as starved for it as ever. And, and really... Church, who better to give encouragement than a believer? Right? But even in that, it is important that the encouragement that we do give be godly encouragement. So tonight we begin. I want us to study this book that shows us how to be encouraged and how to give encouragement in these end times. That's why we titled this uh, lesson tonight, just titled it simply, End Time Encouragement. Now, it's true that there are many ways to encourage uh, people. Many of them, many of these ways are manifested throughout our study. Uh, we'll talk about whether it be a word of comfort, a word of exhortation, a word of recognition. Uh, encouragement can come in many forms. But one thing we must remember is that, and I think this is on your study guide, biblical encouragement always comes with a goal in mind. Okay? There is a definite aim to our encouragement as believers. And we are not simply just patting people on the back to make them feel better about themselves. We are pushing people towards a definite goal, ourselves included, and that goal is to be like Christ sanctified and holy. True biblical encouragement has to be that which uh, not only affirms people on the right path, but also pushes them to be more like Christ every day. And another biblical word actually for the word encouragement is, is exhort. You'll find that word in the New Testament. It means to strongly encourage a person to move in a certain direction. Add this uh, to, you know, the normal definition of encouragement, you find that this biblical word also simply means to, to motivate, you know, uh, us to embrace the Christian call. Paul told Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy 4 and 2, he said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and here's our word exhort, right? With all long suffering and doctrine. 
The writer of Hebrews, I believe it's in chapter 10, verse 24, said, let us consider one another to provoke. That's an old King James English word for motivate. Let us motivate one another unto love and good works. Okay? And so we know that encouragement is far more than just an emotional pick-me-up. Right? Or even a pat on the back of approval. Encouragement is an essential tool that one believer uses to push another believer towards the goal of being more like Christ. Amen? And so hopefully we're, we're aware that encouragement is, is important. But you say, well, how do I become an encourager? How do I better exhort others? How do I better motivate others to love and good works like the Scripture says? How do I encourage others to be obedient to the voice and the call of Christ? That's precisely what we're going to look at. It's what we're going to hopefully learn as we study uh, this book of 1 Thessalonians because it's all about encouragement. Okay? Now, let's get a little background. Everybody say background. Okay, if you really want to get some background about the church at Thessalonian, or Thessalonica, who became known as the Thessalonians, uh, you go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, tells the story that when Paul arrives in Thessalonica, he goes straight to the synagogue, and... Let, let me say this before I go on. Thessalonica still exists today. It uh, is the second largest city on the island of Greece. Today, it has a population of a million or so people. So it's a kind of a, a big place, right? It's one of the few biblical cities that have survived to ancient times. In the first century, it was a very important Greek city. It always had maintained its, its harbor. Uh, it was originally named Therma for its area's hot springs. And perhaps its best advantage was its location, being that it was, it was on the Great Ignatian Way, which is the Roman road that linked Rome with the, all the treasures of the east, basically. It was said that Thessalonica lay in the lap of the Roman Empire, quote, end of quote. And when Paul arrives, he goes straight to the synagogue and begins to teach and preach. But it looks like just a handful of Jews believed. His biggest harvest was among the Gentiles there. Acts 17.4 records, and I quote, of the chief women, not a few were converted. So, it was the housewives of Thessalonica that came to faith in Christ more than anybody else. And if you look, it seems that this made the Jews jealous. They feared Paul's influence, so they complained to the Greek authorities in 17 and 6 of Acts and said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too? Okay? 
giving their disapproval. So the authorities then, after hearing all of that, they actually stirred up the Thessalonians into a, a mob atmosphere to arrest Paul. But they couldn't find him. So they arrested Paul's friend, Jason. So Paul's time in Thessalonica was over after that. And it was over, in a sense, before it really begun. Secretly, he and Silas had to sneak out of the city and go down the road to Berea. And in the days following, after Paul was run out of town, his heart, in a sense, kept running back there because for a city that had been steeped in paganism for over 400 years, by the grace of God, just after three weeks of exposure to the gospel by Paul, a church emerged. That's amazing. Plant a church in three weeks? Yeah, right. But that's the work of God, right? And Paul's brief stay there left behind a strong, robust, healthy church. So before the gospel was preached to them, they were nothing but hot-headed, irrational, mob-like pagans. Okay? And because of that, it was hard. It was hard to become a Christian in Thessalonica. And it was hard to live as a Christian in Thessalonica. And when Paul went there to minister, he was met with all this difficult circumstances. First Thessalonians 2 and 2 implies that not only did they minister amid opposition, but those who believed the message did so under opposition too. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, And ye became followers of us, we read it a moment ago, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. That means in much tribulation and persecution. And so this was a rough place to minister, and it was a rough place to be a believer at. Paul tried to return to Thessal uh, Thessalonica several times, but to no avail. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, And this fact may have only served to heighten Paul's concern even more. You can imagine what Paul must have been thinking. Did they stand strong? Had their faith overcome and endured? Was Satan able to devour them? And these type of questions obviously led Paul to a decision that we find later in this book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you look at verses 1 through 5, Paul was afraid of what might happen to the young church there. So he sends Timothy, okay, to go find out. But when Timothy returns to Paul, it was evident that Timothy had not encouraged the Thessalonians. They had encouraged him. Oh, did you hear me? That's in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 8. It wasn't just what they said. It was how they lived. When Paul received word that the Thessalonian believers were standing strong, man, he was encouraged. And sort of reminds me of the aging Apostle John in John... Uh, uh, Third John, actually, chapter 4, when he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Right? That was Paul's joy, too. 
When it came to the Thessalonians, they had encouraged him. And now he writes this letter to return the favor. He writes to encourage them who had encouraged him. And his encouragement is easy to see in the text. Paul spends some time looking in the rearview mirror in this letter, which is especially evident in chapter 2. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. Seven times he makes reference to things they know. He said in 2 and 1, for yourselves know. 2 and 2, as ye know. 2 and 5, as ye know. 2 and 9, for ye remember. 2 and 10, ye are witnesses. 2 and 11, as ye know. And 3 and 3, for yourselves know. So Paul spends a great deal of time just reminding them of the things he taught them while in that three-week church planting stage. And not only what he taught them, but how he lived among them. How many know that concept is to remind them to imitate him as he imitates Christ? It's an instructive encouragement to remember how to walk as a believer and to continue walking as believers. And he takes that encouragement even to a higher level as we're going to see at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Paul's encouragement is far more than just, hey, you guys are doing great. Paul's encouragement is, wow, you're doing great. And I believe you can even do better. Yeah. And I, and I think, I'm afraid there's a troubling disconnect in today's church world because we've separated the message from the messenger. In the church today, there's a lot of characters, but not much character. Hello. I mean, we've got pastors and church leaders with pizzazz. I mean, they got the bling. But not much integrity. Why? Because in this day, integrity is not hip. Hello. It's not trendy. And sadly, the demand dictates the supply. Here's a major problem. Many churchgoers are more attracted to ability these days than they are integrity. Righteousness. The entertaining personality, the clever presenter, the celebrity spokesman always draws the larger crowd than the faithful servant of God. Listen, just because you attract a large crowd and fill some seats doesn't qualify you to lead a church. Paul hadn't been in Thessalonica for long, but for the time he was there, he lived among the people. They witnessed his relationship with God firsthand, how he treated people, how he handled money, how he carried himself around town. Always remember, the gospel of God's grace is truth regardless of who's presenting it, but it's easier to believe when the message is believable. Or when the messenger, excuse me, is believable. Because Paul was the real deal. Right? And he was committed to those believers for the long haul. He wanted them to go all the way into Christ's likeness. But even then, his encouragement was not finished because notice, he also, or we also see in this text, Paul slipping into consolation mode. That's one of the modes of encouragement. 
As I said, the Thessalonians were persecuted, and so it is possible that even some of them had been martyred for their faith, and if not, they certainly faced the threat of mar martyrdom, and, and this concern would weigh heavy on their minds. So Paul sought to di diffuse the fear by giving the truth about those who were dead in Christ. If, you, if you'll remember that, we'll get to it. First Thessalonians 4, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So Paul then closes the letter by encouraging them to continue encouraging each other. First Thessalonians 5.11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, edify one another, even as also ye do. And so it's obvious that throughout this study, we're going to learn how to be an encourager. And tonight we begin our study in the first chapter. And so we've read uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. Okay, let me go back and, and read it again. Paul and Silvanus, Timotheus, under the church of, Thess uh, of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So at, at one point in Paul's life, it's clear that he was concerned whether or not there was even a church left there, okay, to write a letter to. But they had endured. And now Paul writes to encourage them. And as we see, this first chapter, this first verse, opens up in a very optimistic way, doesn't it? Okay? Verse 2, we give thanks to God. He's going, oh, thank you, Lord. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Here we understand that when a church begins and when a church remains, how many know all credit goes to God? God is the author of salvation. He is the sustainer of our faith. Somebody say, I'm here tonight because of God. That's right. Broadway Assembly is here tonight with the doors open, the lights on, and the air conditioner blowing because of God. So while Paul is encouraged by the Thessalonians, he's grateful to God who has enabled them to persevere. And in this uh, first chapter, we're going to see two main reasons why Paul is grateful to God. Notice on your study guide, number one, God chose them. Okay, he chose them just like he chose Israel to be a light among the heathen. Okay, when we read the first five verses, we see that there are actually numerous reasons why Paul is thankful. He looks at the faith, the love, and the hope of the Thessalonians. All of these are reasons for Paul to rejoice. But in reality, all of those are a byproduct, okay, of something else. And those things exist because God chose them, and that is the point that Paul makes in the fourth verse. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election, a.k.a. choice or drawing of God. is So it was not the Thessalonians who first was drawn to God. It was God who first drew the Thessalonians to himself. Initially, they were pagan rebels who probably had no regard or even thought of God. Okay, it was God who sent Paul. It was God who opened their eyes to see their wretched condition. It was God who opened their hearts to believe. It was God who gave enough life for them to respond to the gospel. It, if God hadn't drawn them, how many know they wouldn't be saved? 
right? John 6 and 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. So, and we are again reminded of that powerful chapter if you go to Ephesians chapter 2 in which Paul just says, you guys were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy... For His great love, wherewith He loved us, even while we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together. Oh, listen folks, can't come to God apart from God drawing them. And so Paul is writing to give credit for the Thessalonian church to God and God alone because he knows he's the one that has drawn them to salvation and it is because of God's drawing them that they live the way they live. In fact, Paul actually gives three reasons that he knows that God drew them. Number one, or letter A, I think it is. Are we on letter A? Good. Got to keep me on track. It was evident in their service. He uses that phrase in in verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. The Thessalonians were serving God consistently in Christian service and ministry. They had not retreated from their spiritual responsibilities and were determined to live to live out their Christian faith. And so it was evident in their service. Letter B. It was evident in their sacrifice. It says, and your labor of love. We know that love is a sacrifice of self for the good of another. Not only did the Thessalonians exhibit this by helping Paul and his friends escape the city, but by their willingness to, in a sense, cover for him. They gave of themselves for the good of others. They supported him. Letter C. It was evident in their steadfastness. It says in in, uh, verse 3 and part C of, of verse 3, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, you guys did not give up. They did not quit just because it was difficult. They did not stop even though they faced opposition. And even without Paul there to guide them, they had remained faithful. In a sense, on their own, we know it was God, but In a sense on their own, because they didn't have Paul there to pat them on the back. And so Paul says, it's evident that God has chosen you, saved you, because you have faith, you have hope, you have love. The presence of these three attributes in their lives helped Paul to know that what what occurred in Thessalonica, excuse me, was true salvation, okay? That is what he means Here in verse 5 when he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Because he had wondered if it did. But also in power, he said. And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. That's an interesting statement. Because Paul is saying, we know now that your acceptance of the gospel message was more than lip service. Oh, aren't you sick of lip service? Huh? We've had lip service at Broadway. 
right? I never will forget. We had an individual come here for one service. Met me in the back. Man, I was glad they come. I was trying to uh, meet him, get to know him. And they were, Pastor, Pastor, we love the church. Okay, they'd only been here one time. We love the church. We want to get involved. Okay, I said, you, got, you keep coming back. I said, we'll get you plugged in eventually. I'll be here. You know what? That's been about 10 years ago, and they've never been back. I just have an issue with lip service. Hello. But Paul says, you know, I didn't know about you guys for sure. I knew you, I knew you guys accepted the gospel when I preached it, but having to leave so early, I, I didn't have no idea if you stuck with it. But he says, now I know that you accepted the gospel because the Holy Spirit was really convicting you because of the power of God that's now evident in your transformed lives this many weeks later or months or whatever. That is a huge encouragement to Paul. You remember when Paul gave his list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. If you remember the last hardship that he listed in that list of, of, of sufferings, it was, quote, the care of all the churches. He says, I've got all this that I'm going through and all this weight is upon me. And he says, and plus all the care of all the churches. What that means is Paul had a heart. He had the heart of a true minister of the gospel. He wasn't just blowing into some city to get results so that he could go to the next city and say, hey, I had 1,500 conversions in Thessalonians. No, Paul was concerned that every one of those conversions in Thessalonica was the real deal. That was his concern. That is why he kept writing letters and re hoping to return to visit. You know, in fact, I was thinking this afternoon, it was the churches who failed to demonstrate true faith that really grieved Paul. I mean, the Corinthians, oh my goodness. You could call them Christians gone wild. Hello? They were carnal. They were immoral. How about the Galatians? Paul basically referred to the Galatians as my dear little idiots. Yeah, because they were so prone to legalism. The Colossians. They were gullible of false doctrine. Paul would be like, man, you guys, like a fish, you swallow these lies, hook, line, and sinker. Oh, but these Thessalonians, they were the joy of Paul's heart. They became the model church. That Paul was like, Corinthians, why can't you be like? The Thessalonians. Galatians, why can't you? You know, hello. How many ever grew up with a brother and sister? Mom and dad. Why can't you be like your older brother? Paul would travel and plant these churches and witness huge response, but his heart never rejoiced fully at the initial response. He rejoiced later when he saw them continue to walk in truth. That was how Christ responded as well. Remember in John 8, 31, 32, he says, Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on him, 
if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Certainly these guys were pleased to see so many make a profession of faith, but it wasn't until their lives bore long-term long fruit that they were convinced of, of that true experience. And when Paul received news that the Thessalonians stood strong, man, he was overjoyed. He knew that their salvation was real and that God really had, had used him as a vessel to reach him. So what encouragement? Somebody say, what encouragement? God had actually used Paul to draw out his church from a group of pagans, okay, in Thessalonica. That was a good thing. So not only did God choose them and draw them, but number two, notice on your study guide, God changed them. And that's in verses 6 through 10. Because down in verse 9, we read that the Thessalonians, before the gospel came, they were nothing but idol worshipers. They were hot-headed, narrow-minded, mob-forming folks. And apparently, steeped, steeped. I mean, when you're, after 400 years of idol worship, how many would say, yeah, you're steeped? Oh, but not anymore. Three weeks, the gospel has changed them versus 400 years. Oh, somebody ought to say, thank God for the power of the gospel. God had changed these people. Paul said on one occasion, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. All right, all right, all right. Let's go on. Paul lists five characteristics of the Thessalonians that reveal this change. Number one, they're objective. Ye became followers, which in the Greek is imitators, of us and of the Lord. Now, that's certainly a little different, you think. Before, they had lived for themselves. Like I said, worshiping idols. But now they're actually doing everything they could to be like Jesus. Following Paul's example. This is not the passion of a lost person. It's the actions of a sold out believer he's talking about here. And it's evident. That was their objective. To follow Christ. Number two, their obstacle. Having received the word in much affliction, which is tribulation, with joy of the Holy Ghost. And this, this makes their objective even more impressive because they didn't just go with the crowd or the mob in accepting Christ. These people actually lived out their commitment, their Christian commitment, by swimming upstream. That's not the attitude of a lost person, is it? No. You're only going to swim upstream if you're a determined believer. Number three, they're observers. Verses 7 and 8. He says, so that ye were in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonian. Notice these areas and it sounded out from you. That's an impressive resume for the Thessalonians. Paul sent Timothy to them to find out how they were doing, but Timothy didn't have to make it all the way to Thessalonica before he heard reports of how they were doing. 
Because the Thessalonians' faith was famous. The Macedonians knew about them. Those in Achaia knew about them. And, and people in many other places knew of them as well. Hey, this church had developed a reputation, right? As folks who obey Christ in the midst of opposition. Wouldn't that be great for every church to have as their reputation? I mean, we all know that just about everywhere you go around here, you get to talking to somebody, they've heard a Broadway assembly. And wouldn't it be great if what they heard was that that faith family down at Broadway Assembly, they're the real deal. What if people said, don't stop in Broadway unless you want anointed singing and a, a, a truth sermon, right? What if people said those Broadway folks really love the Lord? They know how to touch the Lord in prayer. Listen, folks, that's what happened to the Thessalonians. People knew about their faith everywhere. And Paul was encouraged at the change in their lives. And notice their number four, is it their obsession? For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto them and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living. Now, catch what Paul says there. Paul says that when we visit with those people who have heard about you, they tell us, they tell me, they say, Paul, you sure made a difference in the town of Thessalonica. Paul, I don't know if you've heard, but man, you really, you had an impression on them. And then Paul basically says, they go on to tell us that how you turned to God, you turned them from idols unto God. To serve. Listen, in other words, it was obvious to all the Thessalonians they were not, or those around Thessalonica, these folks were not nominal Christians. Right? These guys were obsessed with Christ. Oh, hallelujah. They were passionate about the gospel. And they left an impression. And the people who hear their testimony go away convinced those guys are for real. Number five, their outlook. Their outlook. Sister Jones, you can come to the piano. I'm going to wind down. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Paul says, everyone knows that you guys are looking and anticipating the return of Jesus. And when they see the suffering you endure, it's obvious that you tell them it won't always be this way. It's not always going to be this way because soon our Lord is going to come and deliver us. Folks can tell that you guys are convinced that you're eagerly waiting the return of Jesus. The point being, the Thessalonians were on fire for God. They were in love with Christ. And it was to the point everybody knew it. How many know that's quite a change? That's a change from idol-worshiping, hot-headed mob 
Hello. There's someone that's eagerly anticipating the return of our Lord. That's something only God can do. Amen. And so Paul was encouraged. So as we stand together tonight, let me just challenge you. Let's be those kind of believers. Let, let's let our obedience to Christ inspire others to follow him passionately. Have you ever seen a believer and you, you looked at them and you said, man, I want what they have. Huh? That's the way it was when folks looked at the church at Thessalonica. Edify, Paul says, one another, even as also ye do. The Thessalonians, here's what it comes down to. They had realized that coming to Jesus, yes, it was free, but you can't bring a bag of all your other loves. You cannot bring competing loyalties. They realized early on that Christ refused to be an add-on. It was either Christ is Lord of all or not Lord at all. I like that statement. You've heard it before. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Amen. Father, here tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for the moments we've had to begin a study tonight in this great epistle of Paul. Pray that you bless us in the remaining study and sessions. But God, here tonight, I pray you would infuse somebody's heart with encouragement. Encourage somebody tonight. Thank you for bringing them here to this service. God, that their faith would continue to blossom. If there's one here tonight that has not surrendered to you and passionately uh, determined to serve you, God, I pray they would make that, like the Thessalonians, their obsession. Oh, hallelujah. I'll thank you for it, praise you for it in Jesus' precious name. All God's church says amen. you take a moment kneel in prayer if you can if you got to go I understand if you can kneel in prayer say God make me an encourager help me to do my part to live a life not just with my words but to live a life like Christ that encourages and motivates others to do the same I think that's what this first chapter is calling us to, is to do just that. From earth to glory, all I ask is
is to be.